Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. Welcome back to Bullshit Filter the News, uh, episode 48. Hey, Ray, how are you? <laughs> well, I'm not Ray, I'm Trevor, but I'm fine. Thank you, Cam. Ah! Oh! Well, Ray, you sound like your IQ just went up 50 points. Maybe it's just the accent? Your, I don't know. And your height's gone up as well, marginally. <laughs> marginally. <laughs> Trevor Bell, uh, Brisbane's number one podcast, uh, joining me today while Ray's in Scotland. Trevor from the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Thanks for uh, filling in for the midget. Uh, how's that seat feel? Is it a little bit, little bit tight, a little bit squeezy? Uh, do you need me to get you an adult size chair? Um, I think I have one. I have idea no somewhere. fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, I don't know. What? What? <laughs> You're doing my head in, Trevor. What the fuck is that? <laughs> I thought I thought it just wouldn't feel right not to have Ray here. So we've oh, got him. Oh, I thought I thought you had conferenced him in there for a second. You're doing my head in. How's how's Scotland, Ray? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> how many men has your wife slept with while you've been in Scotland, Ray? <laughs> Uh, Hell, I don't know. <laughs> so we fuck. So we fuck. I know. There's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Oh, Kim. We'll, we'll you've got a right Ray Harris soundboard. I've got to do. I've got to make one of those. Oh, it took it took a long time because oh. you talk over the top of each other all the time. Yeah, I, but I see, think... but see, I've got him in a separate channel. I could just build an entire soundboard of Ray sound effects for future for, for, for fucking him. Oh. Oh. There you go. So oh, we'll see God. how we go. I'll, I'll do my best Ray impersonation in different forms because I'm, I'm okay oh. on the whole uh, Boris Johnson and the whole Brexit thing, but I was worried about my ability to spontaneously laugh, which seems to be <laughs> the main requirement of your co-host. So yeah, you know, I, I think I've got that sorted now if I just oh, press the right button at the right time. God, that is gold. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to get into uh, the story of Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, or just de Feff, I think I'm going to call him from now on. Uh, that's the one of his chosen uh, cognomens that I'm going to go with, de Feff. Uh, he is, uh, became the new leader of the Conservative Party in the UK uh, this week, this week, last week, last week. And therefore is the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. The third Prime Minister they've had in the last uh, six weeks. Uh, they're starting to resemble Australia a little bit with the way that they the, turn over Prime Ministers, Trev. The third in the last six weeks? What do you Third? It's, seems like it. Well, David right. Cameron brought about the Brexit vote. Then he right. resol Then he stepped down. Theresa May came in. She just stepped down. Now, Boris is in. I mean, they're not getting knifed like Australian prime ministers, but uh, they're turning him over relatively quickly. Uh, what's 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 going on over there, Trevor, with the uh, their inability to hold on to a prime minister? Well, this is the difference between the systems, isn't it? When you've got these sort of parliamentary um, democracies where the parliaments themselves elect the leader as opposed to the direct sort of election of the presidential style in the US. So... That's what happens when your colleagues um, get a bit pissed off with you. They just decide they've had enough and uh, and roll you over and, and grab a new one. It's it's easier. It's quite easily done. Just the way the system's set up for these sort of democracies. Mm. So Theresa May resigned in part because she can't get a Brexit deal through Parliament. Now that was the entire that was the entire job basically 
when mm. she replaced David Cameron was to get this Brexit deal passed and through and done with. It's been uh, over two years now. They had two. They had a two-year deadline, and they. Mm-hmm. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to throw you off? Should I just stop? <laughs> Oh, I feel like I've done a tab of LSD. It's just, uh, it's trippy. Um, Mm. Oh, God, don't. No. (laughs) Um, She, in turn, replaced David Cameron in 2016. He stepped down when he threw a vote about whether or not they should leave the EU as a bit of a prank after a drunken night and a few too many curries. And then, fuck me, people voted for it, not realising he was only kidding. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I can do it myself. I don't need Ray. I'm, I'm laughing myself now. There you I'm go. Laughing at my own joke. Oh, <laughs> uh, so who is Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson? Uh, is he, as John Oliver suggested recently, a clone of Donald Trump gone horribly wrong? Or is he something completely different? Uh, we're going to get into the biography of DeFef today. Before we do that, uh, apart from playing Ray Harris sound clips, uh, Trev, do you do you want to do you want to uh, kick this thing off with any deep insights you had in your DeFef research this week? Well, I didn't know much about the man before we started. Um... And the more I read about him, the more I thought this guy is right up the Cam Riley alley because he's got a colourful, he's got a, he's had a colourful life and he's done a lot of interesting colourful things. Um, the temptation is to compare him to Trump, and there are a few comparisons that line up, but he's also quite different in in ways as well. So uh, definitely a colourful character. Lots of stories. I mean. Anybody who, uh, I mean, he's a serial philanderer, as we'll get into, a serial liar. Um, but when I saw that he'd written a poem about goat sex, I thought, this is the man for a Cam Riley um, podcast. So he's he's obviously a very clever guy. I mean, the the big distinction with him and Trump, for example, is going to prove to be that he's he's obviously clever with words and, and has a better intellect than Trump. But... Um, he shares some of the character flaws, which we'll discover as we go along. So, uh, so that was sort of what I got from him. And also, uh, no doubt, you're going to get into it with, uh, you know, just born into that well-connected British upper middle class and the people that 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 he just knew automatically, and and just the kick along that gives you uh, is such an advantage. And you, you can almost fall into the job of being English Prime Minister if you've if you're in the right circles and and you're relatively clever, which he is. So, yeah, that was my thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you said there. I think he is a, he's, a, he's an adventurer. He's a journeyman, um, which does remind me of me. Uh, he's also a history – he's also a bit of a history nerd and, and a bit of a clown. And uh, But then, see, the difference between him and me is I don't think I should be prime minister. Uh, he apparently, according to his sister, uh, Rachel Johnson, has been telling everyone who will listen since he was a kid that his ambition was to be the king of the world. So, uh, anyway, yes, very, very, very interesting character. Like you, I knew very little about him before I started this. So uh, maybe a lot of the listeners will be the same and and, uh, we can bring them up to speed on who the new British Prime Minister is because... One thing I am relatively confident of is he's going to uh, shake things up uh, in Britain over the term mm. of his prime ministership, however short or long that may be. You're going to hear and see a lot of this guy. He's like Donald Trump. He's uh, he's not a, a, a grey faceless suit. He is uh, writ large. He almost needs a big... Ronald McDonald wig and a big red nose and big floppy red shoes. He's that kind of a character, and he's he's going to uh, make sure people pay attention to him. He is a bit of an attention whore, uh, hmm. which is probably why he's prime minister in the first place because he's he's managed to gather attention to himself over the last uh, twenty thirty years. Yeah, when you say that the difference between him and you is that you don't have pretensions of, of being king of the world, for example, 
if you'd grown up in his family and started fox hunting at five and went to European school in Brussels and on to Eton and Oxford and hung around with that crowd, you, you might have, by the end of that, Cam, oh, decided... Don't, um, don't get me know. wrong. I, I, for a very long time in my life, I did think I should be the president <laughs> of the world. Uh, and then I got to a point where I went, no, I'm not the right guy for that job. The difference is I uh, I just want the world to listen to me and do what I say. I, I don't want the title. <laughs> Look, dear listener, I invited Cam over to my house to record this episode. And he said, no, 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 you're going to muck up with my mojo. You know, I've got to be in my own place, do my own thing. You know, I, I, just too no, fucking lazy to put clothes on. Too lazy and, to put and, clothes on, Trevor. That's the thing. <laughs> you didn't have to. But um, anyway... <laughs> Anyway, I think I'm disrupting your train of thought. Please continue, Cam. This is going to be a long, slow <laughs> process. DeFef was born on the 19th of June 1964, which means he just turned 55 uh, about a month before he became Prime Minister, which makes him the 29th youngest person ever to be UK PM. Do you know who the youngest was, Ray? I have no fucking idea. Of course you don't, Ray. What about you, Trev? Do you have any idea? The youngest ever uh, was Disraeli? Nope. Uh, uh, I'll, give you a, my... I'll give you a hint. It's in his name. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, that doesn't help me. Sorry. I'm not, I'm not clued up enough on British Prime Ministers for that to help. William Pitt the Younger. In 1783, uh, at the age of 24 years, was the youngest, is the youngest uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Okay. Guess how old Maggie Thatcher was when she became Prime Minister? Uh, she would have been in her late 40s, 50? 53. Um, John Major was only 47 when he became Prime Minister. I mean, I remember as a kid looking at Maggie Thatcher and John Major and thinking they were like 75. Uh, and he was younger than I am now. Looked 87, reckon, but was only 47. I reckon around 50 would be a good age to be leader of a country because you've had enough experience, but you've still got the energy to get things done. So a lot of leaders... Uh, you know, in the US of recent times, well, Obama was an exception, but, um, you know, they've, they've been a bit old, some of them, like, um, well, um, our friend Trump, he's getting on. I mean, they run out of gas. People run yeah. out of steam. George George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, there was a trend there where they were relatively young, middle-aged. You know, Trump's, you know, sort of the first old guy they've had since Reagan, I think. I think even yeah. uh, Bush 1 was uh, relatively young when he became PM, uh, pres mm. president. Anyway, yeah. Boris Johnson, as you suggested, born to relatively wealthy upper-middle-class British parents, born in New York, though, Boris Johnson. His father, Stanley Johnson, an author, former politician and contestant on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, <laughs> was studying economics at Columbia University at the time that DeFef was born. Uh, his mother is the British artist Charlotte Fawcett, no relation to Farrah Fawcett Majors. Uh, I went spent a lot of time trying to connect the two up, but uh, failed, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, they <laughs> both his parents are still alive. Now, uh, do you know who Boris's great-grandfather was, Ray? I saw a, a lot of his uh, um, ancestors were uh, colourful, of mixed sort of uh, ethnicity and of interesting sort of pedigrees and, and, and some relatively high-up positions. So there's a whole a mixture of them there. I think was there sort of like almost a... A Muslim type character in there at one point, so an Arab sort of connection. But uh, go on, there was there's a bunch of them, a very colourful sort of ancestry of mixed sort of races. Well, you do have something in common with Ray there, Trevor. Like when no, I don't know would have been the right answer. <laughs> you just threw in a bunch of words uh, to you know right, right. make make it look like you, you had an intelligent well, something intelligent to say. 
I know his ancestry isn't pure British, put it that way. It's, it's, it's colourful, like him. One of his great-grandfathers was Ali Kamal, one of the last interior ministers of the Ottoman Empire. And he was assassinated in 1922 during the Turkish War of Independence, uh, hung and stoned to death at the same time. Um, was he Arab? <laughs> he was an Arab, yes. Was he Muslim? Uh, yes, he was Muslim. Do I get part marks then for my yes. earlier comment? Well, you were just, you know, you know making random guesses. was a lucky guesses. guess, was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think it was uh, Ali Kamal's. Uh, ch- ch- he had been stationed in the UK for a while. He had some children there. He left there when he went back, and and um, that's partly how Boris's pedigree ended up as British. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, what do you have anything you want to say about his parents? Uh, did you did you find his parents interesting? Um. Just from that upper upper class English, um, both going to Oxford. So of course he ended up going to Oxford. Uh, his mother was a painter. Uh, so no, just it painted a picture of class to me. And uh, my impression of English society is that class is vital and important, much more so than say in Australian society. So he was in the box seat uh, as he kicked off in life. Hmm. Well, I found it interesting that his father, Stanley, an economist, has worked for the World Bank and the European Commission. In fact, he was working at the European Commission when Boris started criticising the European Commission in his days as a journalist, which we'll get into. Um, For those Australians and Americans who may not know what the European Commission is, it's basically the executive branch of the European Union. And so I think it's fascinating that Boris, who now has the job of removing the United Kingdom from the EU, his father actually worked in the executive branch of the EU. So there's, uh, there's probably some stories in there, I suspect. It's, it's interesting how a parent can set up the family business. So Stanley was an author and a politician, mm-hmm. and Boris is an mm-hmm. author and a politician, mm-hmm. and his mother was a painter, mm-hmm. and Boris likes to paint toy trains or something, some crazy hobby of painting trains. So, so it's almost like the family business has been set up of, of, of an author, a politician and a painter, and he's just moved into the family business. And some of his siblings are also journalists <laughs> and politicians. So, yes, it's the family business. I saw an amazing portrait. I was watching a BBC uh, profile on Boris and saw a, a self-portrait he did when he was 12 that was stunningly good. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he's, he's got some good, good genetics. Not in the looks department, maybe. Fair enough, but uh, certainly in the uh, intellect and talent department, he's got good genetics and obviously a a toffee upbringing. So at 13, uh, Boris, who was still known as Alex, uh, went to boarding school at Eton College on a scholarship. Nothing makes me happier, Ray, than to see uh, rich kids from wealthy (laughs) upper-class backgrounds being given scholarships, free uh, free education, because they need it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, they if anyone, if anyone needs a free ride through life, it's, uh, you know, kids of rich parents, don't you think? Mm. Yeah, I just accept it. I'm not outraged. How that worked well. You still there? You nearly made me spit my mate all over my keyboard, dude. Like, come on. That's so sad. <laughs> That's it. Ray's fired. Just give me the soundboard. <laughs> and... It took me hours to do this. I spent more time on the soundboard than I did on, on Morris. <laughs> well, that sounds very Ray-ish of you. Oh, God damn it. What do you use as your soundboard kit? <laughs> Oh, I can't even see the name of it here. I'll tell you later. It's just on an iPad and I've got them all lined up here. So we'll just keep working our way through them, Cam. <laughs> Are you just hitting them randomly? Do you know what's coming or is it just like... Oh, I, I know I know what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're still there. <laughs> oh, God. 
Oh, shit. Um, if he... somebody's listening to this episode for the first time, <laughs> to your podcast for the first time, like some of my listeners uh, yes. might be listening to this for the yes. first time. Yes. <laughs> Thinking, what yes. the hell is going on? Yes. There's a lot of in jokes in this. Oh God! You, you need to listen to multiple yeah. Ray and Ken episodes, and you'll you'll get some of this. So yeah. Oh my God. Uh so let me uh, refocus my eyes. So he went to Eton College, which probably means Boris would have been a fag. <laughs> really? Yes, and I mean that, of course, in the traditional sense of fagging and faggots the lovely tradition at uh, british boarding schools you 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 familiar with that uh time-honored tradition trevor is this kind of like a hazing sort of thing is that what you're saying you're not suggesting outright homosexuality are you or you are well no but i think that that's where it comes from um so there was this tradition uh at boarding schools like eton in the United Kingdom, where the junior boys coming in had to act as the personal servant of the older boys. Mm. They, they would basically be their, you know, their, their servants, their slaves. Uh, they had a variety of chores that they would have to do. They'd have to shine their shoes, blacken their boots, brush their clothes down, cook breakfast. One of my favourites is warming toilet seats. Um <laughs> They would have to get on the toilet in the morning, warm it up for the older boys, and lighting fires for them in the morning, which I think is where the term comes from. Obviously, uh, as you probably know, I think most people know, like a bunch of sticks that used to light a fire are called faggots, and these (laughs) boys' job was to collect the faggots, light the fire, and they were known as faggots and fagging. And I think there was the occasional bum sex going on as well, which I think is probably I didn't I didn't drill down into this because I didn't want it. Uh, you know, you know, if, if you go googling things like this, then it ends up you, you know what you get in your Amazon recommendations and your Netflix recommendations. So you know, yeah, I didn't want that. Not that there's mm. anything wrong with that. It's just you know <laughs> I got enough problems with the amount of times that I look at Goatsy uh, and the recommendations that pulls up. I didn't need to add to it. Um, so I, I think that's where the connection with homosexuality comes from. Uh, the, the, I think that did get phased out, at least officially, probably in the late 70s, early 80s in a lot of these places. But certainly when Boris was there, he would have been a faggot and had his own faggots later on, um, boy slaves. And who knows? Who knows uh, what that did to his psyche? <laughs> He certainly made some sort of homophobic-style comments later in his writings, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't up to it himself when he was at uh, Eton. So, well, but, yes, uh, he was I... criticised for sort of some of his comments about homosexuals later. Even if uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that. I mean, he's, as you said it in the introduction, massive philanderer. So uh, mm-hmm. I think he likes mm-hmm. the ladies, but. Um, mm-hmm. The, certainly all of his illegitimate children uh, would, would confirm that. Um, but he, uh, it's it's more this concept of having boy servants doing your chores for you, um, which I think is an interesting, must have an interesting um, mm-hmm. psychological impact on you as the boy servant and as the leader of other, or the, the owner of boy servants later on. Mm-hmm. Um it was at Eton that he started using the name Boris uh, just to get attention, apparently. He ditched his name of Alex and said, from now on, you can call me Boris. Mm. Just for shits and giggles, I think, which mm-hmm. uh, sort of was the beginning of the shits and giggles personality, which is pretty much how he comes across today. Well, it seems that he sort of, manufactured or intentionally created that sort of persona of of the, the character that we know him of now and at a very early age he he took on as you say the name boris and and, and played up to this persona of this, this sort of disheveled sort of character a bit of a clown but sort of witty and clever and um and an entertainer and a good conversationalist um and really developed um a character that he then inhabited for the rest of his life. So that was sort of part of it sort of happening at a fairly early age. Yeah, and I think this is one 
way that he does resemble Donald Trump. Um, I think it's fairly obvious that the Trump persona that he inhabits as president is a persona. Uh, it's something that he kind of developed along the way with the the um, Apprentice TV show. You go back and you look at interviews with Trump, and I've done this a lot, interviews with him from the late 70s and early to mid 80s. He he was not the uh, buffoony, clownish, uh, ranty, narcissistic personality that he is now. I mean, maybe narcissistic, but he was. He tried to be the the suave uh, man about town back then. Now maybe that was the that was the fake personality, and really underneath he was the uh, buffoony racist. I don't know, but. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly, somewhere along the line, he's adopted a persona, and now uh, and everyone does that. Certainly, politicians all do that, but the persona that they adopt is usually trying to convey a certain level of seriousness and adherence to political norms. Trump and Boris uh, have obviously gone in the opposite direction and decided to be clowny entertainers as mm. uh, their political persona. That's the noise. That's the noise Ray makes when uh, he's not paying attention. Um, and that's yes. when. When did he make that noise? <laughs> don't tell us. I don't want to know. Usually, usually when the usually when the dog comes into the recording studio and is under the desk, um, and he unzips his fly. But it is a it's a developed persona that he that he that he created at an early age, which is important to know. Like he, uh, not many people do it to the extent he does. I don't think, or he did. Yeah, and you have to wonder what was going on when he did that at at, at an early age. In your early to mid-teens, uh, where you would adopt a new name, well, was, he had the name, but it was, a, it was a sort of a flamboyant name to decide to use as his primary uh, name. And uh, this, this buffoony persona masking a, a genuine intelligence um, designed to you know, create a little bit of an uproar wherever he goes. Uh, fascinating. You know, you, I'd love to get a psychologist or a psychiatrist perspective on why a kid of that age would develop that kind of persona. What what it was that he was trying to hide from, or or, or deal with, or mask. What do you think? Oh, I've got a theory that I've just come up with. Mm-hmm. So see how this goes. Is that from my reading of him, he's obviously clever and intelligent, but quite lazy and not interested in detail and not wanting to work hard at things. So if you're the sort of clown and you're flippant, you can drop in and out of conversations and provide snippets, and then you can sort of buffoon your way out of the difficult parts. So um, you can entertain and just get away with a lot more without being exposed as lazy if you you create this sort of buffoon-type character. So it might have been a cover for not wanting to work hard. How's that? Yeah. By the way, your mic level just went up again too, verging on annoyingly loud. Um, I I actually saw an interview with Boris where he said exactly that. He said that by acting dumb, sometimes you can get out of situations where you actually don't know what's going on, but people can't tell the difference. If, if, if you continually put on this persona of I'm dumb and I'm an idiot and I don't know anything, then when you genuinely don't know anything, people may just think you're clowning around. Mm, there we go. So I think you nailed it there. I think it, it, it certainly sounds like he's aware that that's a uh, deliberate tactic for navigating scenarios where you um, don't know the right answers. Um, certainly, I'm sure it was a way of, of becoming popular, even in, in his sort of Eton days, his sort of high school days, being a bit of a clown. Um, but I, I wonder if there was it was, a, it was an avoidance tactic, that there was pain underneath that that he didn't want to uh, reveal and he adopted the, the mask of the clown. 
That's anyway, deep. at Eton, he uh, at Eton he uh, made friends with lots of wealthy upper class, generally upper class people, like Princess Diana's brother Charles, who I believe he befriended at Eton and uh, is still friends with. So he really started to connect with a lot of upper society, which is what those schools are designed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Keep the upper classes uh, very well connected. After he graduated from Eton, he did a gap year in Australia. He did. He uh, he was some sort of uh, a teacher of English and Latin at Timbertop, which is part of Geelong Grammar. Have you ever heard of Timbertop before, Cam? Well, I have. I lived in Melbourne for 20 years, Trev. Uh, oh. Very familiar with the toffee part of uh, Australian society that comes out of Geelong Grammar and Timbertop. It's the boarding mm. school associated with Geelong Grammar. Mm. And I think it's in grade 10 or 11 where for a year the boys go out um, and it's to a special area they've got out in the countryside where they do a lot of camping and living rough and they're out there for a year at this um, at that time. So uh an outward bound inspired campus is how it's described in Wikipedia. Um, Cam, but oh, do you know well, how much? Very, very. You, you have a lot in common with Ray. <laughs> do you know how much it costs for that one year uh, when they do the uh, timber top course at Geelong Grammar? No, oh, I do not. Uh, about eighty three thousand dollars. Yeah, I would have guessed a hundred. Yeah. 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 Now, Prince Charles attended Timbertop in the 60s. That's the kind of uh, place that we're, we're talking about here. It's very, very uh, toffee and upper class. Uh, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses into Child Sex Abuse uh, described Geelong Grammar and Timbertop as a hot house of violent acts with a subculture of brutality, which explains everything you need to know about Prince Charles and maybe <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> Just the kind of conditioning you want for future political leaders. Uh, send them to a place with a subculture of brutality. You just need to weed out the psychopaths from the non-psychopaths by sending them to a place like this. The people that survive and prosper, probably are psychopaths and the kind of person the elite want in leadership positions. The people that don't survive are obviously the non-psychopathic people and uh, you, you want them to basically go back to being uh, just, I don't know, normal members of society and let the psychopaths rule things. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, I, I was just going to say, is it, it's a peculiar sort of English thing, sort of send kids off to boarding school the way that they did. It seems just inherently cruel that the upper classes of British society used to just send these little boys off, often at six and seven, off to these boarding schools and and have the horrible experiences that you've been describing. But you know, it doesn't seem to have been an American thing, or or even uh, you know, are there any other cultures that have done that? It's it's peculiarly sort of British upper class thing to send your kids away to be to be hardened up in these environments. Well, I know uh, Napoleon went to a boarding school at around about the same age. I think he was um, nine or ten when he went to boarding school, but that was partially because his family lived in Corsica and he was sent to France right. to attend school. And it was, I think it was a, a brutal experience for him. And there's actually a through line from Napoleon through to uh, uh, Boris as well that I'm sure I'll get to at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it is a very British uh, tradition, and I think it explains a lot of the British Empire and the, the sort of the the general cultural level of psychosis that the British Empire exhibited. This this sort of brutal sense of superiority that the elite uh, adopted and maintained throughout the empire. And it would have knocked a lot of gentleness out of these guys as well. Um, I think it would have really hardened them up and to make some pretty awful decisions later in life when they had some power. Yeah, and look, you know that I've written this book on psychopaths and psychopaths and sociopaths or antisocial personality disorder is how it's described in the the clinical literature and the generally the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths the psychopaths are born that way sociopaths are made that way they uh, uh, go through some sort of trauma 
as a child which destroys the normal development of the empathy center in their brain. It's so sad. And they they come out uh, psychopaths or sociopaths on the other end, meaning they're able to uh, uh, cause damage to other people, be it physical damage through acts of violence or war or, or psychological right, or right. emotional or economic damage. And not feel the, the 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 levels of remorse or empathy for the damage that they've caused that normal people have, and I think the system was deliberately designed to do that. There was this idea that you had to produce hard, tough leaders, which effectively produced generation after generation centuries of psychopaths and sociopaths. Yeah, it would have been tough. I don't envy kids who were sent into those environments. It would have been pretty ugly. Yeah. I mean, fuck it. Going to public school in Queensland was bad enough. (laughs) (laughs) At least that was my experience in the 70s and 80s. I don't know about yours, but... Well, you uh, shouldn't have been such a dick, probably. That would, you know, you you would have brought a lot of stuff on yourself. But hey, I don't know. I wasn't there. (laughs) You're just reading between the lines. That's yeah, a few yeah. assumptions. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, or was I a dick or did they make me a dick? <laughs> Who knows? Mm. We'll have to get some of your old... Uh, we should get some of your old uh, school colleagues, interview them. And what was mm. Cam Riley like as a, mm. as, a, yeah. as a sort of a teenager? When Mike Willisey hosts This Is Your Life uh, for the... Uh, <laughs> you can go ahead and do that. Ray Martin, Mike Willis. Who did that? Who did This Is Your Life? Mike Walsh. Mike uh, Walsh. Mike Willis, he did it, I think. Did maybe. But uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nobody born after 1980 knows who the hell we're talking about with any of those people. Look, by the way, this biography that we're doing of Boris Johnson, and we've, we haven't even got out of his school years yet. Exactly what time are you planning on finishing this episode? Like, have we got. Hey, listen, don't fucking. You, the one who started playing Ray Harris sound clips. Fucking threw me off. I was going to do a very... I thought, I'm going to get through this. No hijinks. Come on, hop, hop. The listeners need to know the information. Let's give it to them. He then, after uh, his uh, 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 time at uh, Timbertop Subculture of Brutality, he uh, won another scholarship to study the classics at Oxford. And uh, started there in 1983, the same year as David Cameron, future Prime Minister. Mm. At Oxford, he joined the old Etonian Bullington Club, Bullingdon, an upper-class drinking society known for its vandalism. Again, all of the requisite training for a member (laughs) of the British elite. And then he graduated with an upper second class degree. So not the brightest of the bright, or at least not the hardest working of the hard. Uh, But he didn't need to because he sort of was coasting through life with a bit of a silver spoon in his mouth and a bit of a a velvet, uh, velvet net to catch him if he should fall, which he did over and over and over again Mm. and uh, managed to get caught. It was at Oxford where he met and shortly thereafter married an aristocrat, Allegra Moston Owen. It's a very toffee-sounding British name. Do you know much about his first wife? Look, as I skimmed through the details of Boris, I realised there was a, a number of women in his life and it became too numerous to keep track of them all. But I just, you know, I just have got the idea in my head that there was quite a few of them and he saw a number of children with different ones. But the actual details of each one, you know, uh, in, the, in the words of uh, Ray Harris. I have no fucking idea. Jesus Christ, this is going to be a long, long day. Uh, well, at the time, at the time he met and married Allegra Mostano, and she'd already been on the cover of Tatler magazine. Um, basic for for people outside of the UK who don't know what Tatler magazine uh, is, it was sort of. Um, Magazine that covered high society and politics, uh, targeted at the British upper middle class and upper class. 
society mag, society people. She'd already been on the cover at the time Boris met and married her. She grew up in a castle in Scotland, Aburachil Castle. Small castle, only 23 rooms or so, now owned by the Russian steel tycoon Vladimir Lisson. Her father was an expert on the art of the Italian Renaissance. So um, he married immediately into high society, is the point. Um, Climbing the ladder. I mean, he started off on a fairly high rung of the ladder and then continued to climb with his first marriage. Marriage didn't go well, only lasted three years. And by the time their divorce came through, his new woman, Marina Wheeler, a childhood friend, daughter of the late BBC correspondent Sir Charles Wheeler, their longest-serving foreign correspondent. By the time his divorce came through uh, from his first wife, his soon-to-be second wife was already heavily pregnant. They got married 12 days after the divorce came through, and she gave birth, I think, not long after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Charles Wheeler, her father, by the way, during World War II, was part of 30 Assault Unit, the secret naval intelligence unit set up by Ian Fleming. She uh, today is a QC. They had four children and recently got divorced because he was running around with his now 31-year-old girlfriend, Carrie Simons, who was until recently the communications director for the Conservative Party and is the daughter of Matthew Simons, the co-founder of the independent newspaper. This is the thing about these people. There's so many rabbit holes you could follow because everybody he meets, the people he works with, he associates with, they're all sons and daughters of interesting people who have done lots of things, who have held high positions, who are sons and daughters of people who have had high positions and and positions of power. And it's just such a, a connected social group that he's mixing with. And I think that's the point. Like, this is... He he comes from and has always lived in the toffee part of town where mates look after mates and father-in-laws look after you and give you access to things and contacts and networks. This is, this is how the elite have designed the system to work. This is why places like Timber Top exist, to brutally sodomize young boys and turn them into future leaders of the world. Mm. Should I keep going? Um, After Oxford, Boris worked as a journalist at The Times, where he was quickly fired for making up a quote, (laughs) which he claimed was from his own godfather, the historian Colin Lucas, in an article Boris wrote about the discovery of Edward II's palace. Mm. Any thoughts on that incident? What does that tell us about his character as a young man? Uh, That he was prepared to lie at an early stage and the truth didn't matter. He wouldn't let truth get in the way of a good story. Exactly. Here he is. He's got a journalist at the most esteemed and ancient newspaper in the United Kingdom, something you would think uh, any young aspiring journalist would uh, take seriously, almost immediately he just starts making shit up. And for no reason either. I mean, the quote that he made up and attributed to his own godfather didn't add anything to the discovery of Edward II's palace. He could have just did a straight story about it. Mm-hmm. He, he, I, I, I can only assume he ins- made up this quote and inserted it just for shits and giggles to see if he could get away with it. I think he wanted to use the word catamite that was in the quote there somewhere. So, <laughs> so that was just an excuse to throw it in. And why? Why would you want to throw in the word catamite unless you had been sodomized at uh, Eton College? You have to uh, wonder. He just liked playing with words. He liked colourful stories. He, you know, it's it as if he's a, you know, at the pub with his mates and telling stories. And he just, you got to colour it up a little bit. So a catamite is a, it's a, it's a kept young boy who's kept for sort of homosexual services, I think. Mm. Is that right? Something mm. along those lines? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, you know, exactly what you would expect somebody who'd been a faggot at Eton College and then gone on to Timbertop to uh, be sort of obsessed with slightly. Mm. Yeah. 
but there you go. Like his very first job at the Times of London, he's just making shit up for shits and giggles and maybe to get his uh, deep psychological damage uh, expression, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. Fascinating. Tells you so much about the guy, I think. He then, but he landed on his feet. Don't worry about poor uh, Boris because he secured a job almost immediately at the Daily Telegraph where he was uh, sort of connected to or friends with the editor at the time, Max Hastings, who he knew from Oxford. Now, are you familiar with the writings of Max Hastings, Trev? No, I'm not familiar with Max Hastings. Mm, Very good writer, very good writer. Written a ton of books on World War II and uh, people like Winston Churchill, who, of course, is Boris's big obsession, apart from ancient Rome. Um, And his penis. Yep. Well, he's just a man. Um, (laughs) I've I've been reading one of Max Hastings' books uh, on Vietnam uh, for part of our Cold War series and all the uh, many, many episodes we did uh, recently on the First Indochina War. Uh, yeah, very good, very good writer. Um, you know, very esteemed uh, historian and journalist, Max. So he he gave uh, gave Boris a safe uh, landing there. And in early 1989, he appointed Boris to the newspaper's Brussels bureau to report on the European Commission. And almost immediately out of the gate, Boris was not only a massive critic of the European Commission, the European Union, but um, also just started making shit up again about it uh, and, and going for the shits and giggles angle. Uh, mm. and, but this time managed to get away with it. Mm. So he, he made a career then of referring to rules and regulations that the EU were bringing in and beating them up to be... Uh, an attack on sort of British sovereignty or on British values or traditions and and basically uh, stirring up anti-Euro sentiment and, and ridiculing the technocrats and the bureaucrats of, of the, the, the Euro machine. And, of course, the average British punter just love that and they'd sit over there, tea and toast, their mashed potato and bangers or whatever they're having in the morning and... Uh, and, and lapped up his articles. So obviously did very well with that. And he recognised that, that this was popular and and there was no leash on him. He just kept going and, and made things more colourful as he went along. Which is fascinating because his father worked for the European Commission at the time, um, but is also, I think, a critic of it and is certainly pro the Leave vote for Brexit. Chris Patton, who was the last British governor of Hong Kong, later stated that at the time Johnson was, and this is Chris Patton's words, one of the greatest exponents of fake journalism. Mm. Just making shit up. As I always say, you know, Donald Trump didn't invent fake news. Fake news has been around for a long time and has been supported by the media and the elite uh, for a very long time. So Donald Trump's not wrong when he talks about the amount of fake news that's out there. He just figured out how to uh, turn the existence of it to his advantage, as did our friend Boris Johnson. So apparently his Euroscepticism or EU scepticism, as it's sometimes referred to, um, not only made him popular with the, the, the masses in the UK, he was also the favourite journalist of Margaret Thatcher. Um, and, and he somehow managed to turn this making fun of the European Union into a political career for himself. According to one of his biographers, a lady by the name of Sonia Purnell, who was actually his deputy in Brussels, he helped make Euroscepticism an attractive and emotionally resonant cause for the right. Now, you and I uh, may get into the whole Brexit thing after this, uh, the uh, sort of a breakdown of the the Brexit mess, but um, do you want to comment briefly on what what the attraction might have been uh, to Euroscepticism? 
In what sense? What do you mean? The attraction for the British? Yes. Or... Yeah. Why? Why would be making fun of the EU uh, uh, make him popular? Why? Why were people attracted to that in England? Well, people were feeling uh, that the EU had, had taken control of their country, that they'd lost, that they'd lost control, and had handed it over to these European bureaucrats. So, it's a sort of a, a form of nationalism, a sort of national pride that they wanted. Um, they, di- they didn't like that idea. They didn't like being regulated by uh, French and German and 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 people in Brussels. So it's a it's a reaction to that self you know self determination, if you like. Mm, the 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 organisation that they fought to join uh, because of all of the benefits of it. There was a certain mm. feeling that uh, they weren't masters of the universe anymore. Yeah, well, obviously, if we do end up talking about Brexit down the track, it's extremely complicated. And and uh, but you know, people thought we'd better be in the EU so that we have a say because we're actually being directed by all these regulations anyway. In a in a sense, in order to trade with the EU, we're having to comply, so we might as well join and have a say in what the regulations are. And then, after a period of time, people argued that well. Whenever it goes to a vote, we never get what we voted for and we're losing all the time, so we don't have to say that we thought we did. So uh, also there was a feeling when they joined that Britain was economically in trouble and needed to be part of the EU as it was just deteriorating and in more recent times felt that, well, we can go it along uh, ourselves and don't need the EU anymore. So, you know... Shifting economic sentiments, shifting realisation about how much say they really did have in the EU, um, all those things add up. And I think there, and again, we'll get into this in the Brexit shows, but there Mm. is a certain uh, group of people and organisations that are trying to dismantle things like the EU and the United Nations uh, because they do want to return to a world where there's less international cooperation and regulation. Mm. Like, I have to say, Cam, that when it comes to the EU, I'm still not sure how I would have voted if I was a British citizen. I'm chopping and changing myself as the more I read. Have you got a firm idea of how you would have voted in the referendum? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in international cooperation. Yes, it's flawed. Yes, it's difficult. But democracy is flawed and difficult. Uh, we know that. Just because something is flawed and difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't persist and try and fix it. Like the UN. Like the We've done a lot of shows on our Cold War series about the United Nations and the UN Security Council. Yes, it is terribly flawed and has a lot of problems. But my position on it is, well, let's fix the problems. It's like a, it's like a, a marriage, Trevor, uh, mm. or, or having a co-host. Sure, <laughs> the co-host might be useless and lazy, but, you know... <laughs> But if there's genuine deep love there, then you work on it and you fix it. Or you just accept that that's just who he right, is. Right, And, you know, he has uh, redeeming qualities. No, you, 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 you fix it and work it if you believe. Now, like, I'm a big believer, and, and we'll get into this in the Brexit show, and this, the, if you look at the whole, the reasons the European Union was set up and its predecessors in the first place, it was an attempt to bring about peace a lasting peace in Europe by intertwining their economies and their legal systems, and uh, that was a, that was a that was a good, bold, brave idea because Europe had been at war since Julius Caesar. Uh, so th- these these um, ambitions were good ambitions. And they may have been imperfectly executed, but uh, I don't think the the desire to prevent future European wars is a bad desire. And um, the European Union certainly has, I think, uh, uh, been part of the reason there hasn't been a major intra-European war in the last 70 years. Hmm. Well, one of your big things, though, is 
is the power of the one percent, the big corporations. And in my mind, uh, the sort of bureaucracy of the EU, uh, it almost is a system that could favour the big corporates and the one percenters. And mm -hmm. if you are looking to take away some of their power, you might be better off as an independent UK out of the EU system. But uh, maybe not. But that's part of my thinking as to why you might want to pull out of the EU. Well, I think that it's 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 a, it's a you're sort of losing some democracy and some sovereignty by joining the EU. And democracy Good. is about the only thing that will actually take away power from the one percent. No, see, this yeah, whole—that's an whole, argument for well, that's an argument whole, for another day, perhaps. This whole nation-state sovereignty thing is uh, the problem. We need to get away from that. We need to form a one-world government. Get away from this uh, nation-state thinking. Indeed, but you need to have uh, a whole bunch of things all under the one roof if you're going to do that. Yeah, and having part under one, partly sort of segregated into a country and, and part sort of off to the side with the European Commission may not work. But, um, well, yeah. but the, pro the progression of history has been to, from villages through to consolidation of, hmm. of peoples. That's been the path of history and uh, uh, things like the UN and the EU are a continuation of that. Yes, they're flawed. Yes, they have problems. But I think uh, we should be putting our best minds on fixing those rather than just pulling out and going back to the way things work. Anyway, as you said, let's leave that for uh, another show. So um, he was back to Boris. He was writing for the tele Daily Telegraph in the 90s, waged war against the EU and made up a lot of stories about the EU's... Uh, you know, he would like to pick out things to, to sort of exaggerate the silliness of uh, the EU uh, regulating the curvature of British bananas, uh, the, the pinkness of British sausages, the wanting to regulate the size of British condoms, uh, all these sorts of uh, clownish statements that were mostly, if not entirely untrue but that didn't stop him writing about them and it didn't stop the daily telegraph from publishing them because they were good for shits and giggles and and making fun of europeans which i think appealed to the british sense of inherent superiority well on the condom issue he he claimed the eu had considered plans for a maximum condom width of 54 millimeters which would, of course, restrict the better endowed Englishman. <laughs> and this was an outrage. So stories like that. But when you mentioned before how he would criticise the EU, even though his father had been, you know, involved in it, the point about Boris, as we'll learn, is that he's not a man of conviction. He doesn't no. have uh, ideals. It's whatever suits Boris at the time. And uh, so he, he'll just swap his mind on a topic or, or his position on a topic if he needs to. So... It seems to be uh, he's a man without conviction. He'll just chop and change to whatever suits him at the time. So, sure, be critical of the EU now, maybe support it later, maybe be critical again at another time. It's just whatever suits him at the time. Which is another another way in which he resembles Donald Trump. He's a man of zero conviction. He's just a political opportunist. Yeah, actually, I got that wrong. I, I needed to change the tone of my voice. and I, I need, At the end of that little spiel, I needed to say something like, and it's just whatever suits him at the time. The uh, the big the big Ray Harris uh, summation voice, and that just gives you a lead in, and you know I'm about to stop, and yeah. then you can chime and in. It comes down like that. <laughs> um, I've got I saw a, I saw a clip from Boris uh, from 2013 when he was asked uh, if there had been a vote tomorrow on the leaving or staying in the EU. How would he vote? He said, "Oh, I definitely vote to stay." Big believer, big believer in the single market, he said in 2013, and then later was the leader, a couple of years later, the leader of the Leave campaign. So as you say, no no sense of conviction, just whatever yeah. happens. In fact, he told the BBC that during his years um, in Brussels, writing for the Daily Telegraph, 
I was sort of chucking these rocks over the garden wall and I listened to this amazing crash from the greenhouse next door over in England as everything I wrote from Brussels was having this amazing explosive effect on the Tory party. And it really gave me this, I suppose, rather weird sense of power. So that was his approach to his reporting on the EU, Mm. just throwing rocks at a glass house. Well... That's the end of part one of our Boris Johnson Bullshit Filter special mini biography. Uh, We've got another hour of it. We spoke for two hours, but quite frankly, I don't think you can handle it. Um, Now, probably we could have done it in an hour if Trevor hadn't kept playing uh, clips of Ray laughing uh, because that just kept cracking me up and I kept losing my uh, (laughs) focus. But anyway, we'll be back next week with part two of the uh, Boris Johnson mini bio. Fascinating story, fascinating guy, a little bit terrifying, but uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Talk to you next week. And who needs Ray? Let's be honest.